Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com slash smart toilets and discover what you've been missing. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we're prepared to take a look at another true crime case. Before we begin, however, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for The Deathcast or Deathcast Pod. I am on most social media sites under those names. If you are a fan of what I do and would like to help support the show, please consider joining the Coffee Club at buymeacoffee.com backslash deathcast. You can also find that in the show notes. If you're interested in being an advertiser on this show, please contact my agents at bigpondpodcasts.com. They can give you all the pertinent information such as rates and availability. Lastly, if you want to help get the show to more people, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. We do have a new five-star review this week. This one is from Jimmy in Canada. Great podcast, five stars, one of the best, if not the best, true crime podcasts out there. The details are unmatched and the facts are meticulously researched. 
Thank you so much for that review, Jimmy. It really is appreciated. As is your interactions with the show on various social media platforms. If you'd like to get your five-star review read on air, please go to wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave a written review, and I will read it out as soon as I am able. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. Before I get into this week's case, I just want to discuss something quickly. I've had a number of people reach out to me concerning the redo I am working on of the West Memphis 3. Uh, It was originally supposed to be a Patreon series of episodes. However, when I started recording, it is right around the time when I was signed with Big Pond Podcasts, and that changed quite a few things. So I've had to hold off on releasing it as uh, the show is in the midst of transferring from its normal hosting service to a much larger hosting service, and I actually have to see how this service is set up, but that one is coming, so please just hold on a little bit longer. That one will be coming out. As for this week's case... This case doesn't actually include any murders, although anybody who has listened to the show for a considerable length of time can tell you that I am a big advocate for child sexual abuse survivors. And every now and again, I come across a case that most people have never heard of, and I decide that I'm going to dive into it to get the information out there. And this particular case comes from Louisiana and involves a child sex abuse ring. I try and cover cases like this because there's been a very big media narrative that these child abuse rings don't actually exist. This has particularly become an issue ever since the entire Pizzagate nonsense broke. So this is kind of my one of my efforts to try and negate that narrative to show people that, yes, in fact, these kinds of rings do exist. It's not a conspiracy theory and that these things need to be looked into more often as opposed to being simply dismissed as a flight of fancy. Now, we've talked about these types of rings before, particularly when we were covering the Atlanta child murders, and I revealed information that I had found concerning a child sex abuse ring that was discovered to be operating in and around Atlanta, not far from the Omni Sports Complex. We also discussed this type of topic when we were talking about Sidney Cook, the notorious British pedophile who not only molested boys in concert with other men, but also murdered them. 
This particular case is tied into a much larger case, specifically the Catholic Church's cover-up of child sexual abuse, but I'm not going to be diving into the whole Catholic Church aspect of it. Actually, this case is extremely timely because it concerns a Boy Scout troop whose sole purpose for existing was actually to allow the perpetrators access to these children. And I do want to warn people beforehand that we're going to be discussing some pretty unsettling information in this episode. And if you're easily triggered or bothered by discussions of child sexual abuse, you may want to find a different episode to listen to for this week. This case is one of those cases that were it not for lawsuits, and the internet would more likely than not have been forgotten. At the time that this case happened, it was very big regional and even national news to some small degree, but as the decades wore on, it was forgotten about. Much as the other rings from the 1970s were forgotten about, I'm talking specifically about North Fox Island, which was run by Francis Sheldon, who had connections to Dean Coral and also to John Wayne Gacy. You can find information about that stuff online. I'd like to point out, however, that I'm the first that found the information connecting those three individuals. I put the information out there. Others glommed onto it, ran with it, and started creating websites about it, forgetting the fact that they didn't have the documentation that shows these individuals are actually connected, nor can they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were connected. I have seen the documents. I have some of the documentation. Anyways, that's beside the point. Boy Scout Troop 137 was based in New Orleans, Louisiana. And sources differ as to when this Boy Scout Troop was actually founded. Some state that it was in 1970, others that it was 1973 or 74, and this is actually coming from one of the perpetrators. So in 73 or 74, Raymond Woodall, Richard Stanley Halverson, and Harry Kramer, along with a slew of other conspirators, decided to form the Scout Troop 137, and this was in eastern New Orleans. At this period of time, the Boy Scouts still had a fairly squeaky clean reputation. As we're going to see, however, Troop 137 was anything but your typical Boy Scout troop. Fairly quickly, these men began recruiting young boys to their newly founded troop and began abusing them. To give you an idea of the scope that these men operated under, 
they were known to fly individuals in from out of state in order to participate in the abuse of these children. Woodall and company would tell others that their troop was nothing more than an escort service designed to provide young boys for individuals who had the cash to pay for their services. As to the victimology, these men would target children from poorer families and broken homes, often grooming them by providing them with the uniforms and bicycles, toys, and other trinkets in an effort to gain their affection, at which point the abuse would begin. They would invite these boys over to sleepovers at their house and camping activities, oftentimes under the guise of a scouting trip, at which point the boys would be victimized. But it wasn't just local men and people who flew in from out of town who would participate in this abuse of boys. Troop 137 very quickly spread its tentacles and gained access to the nationwide pedophile ring founded by Francis D. Sheldon. And it was through this association with Sheldon that the scoutmasters were able to advertise the services that they were offering on a nationwide basis and would then facilitate clients out of state by either driving or flying the boys to be abused by their clients. And I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, how is this possible? How did the parents not know? Remember, this is the 1970s. In some regard, it was a much more innocent time. People didn't think that organizations like the Boy Scouts would be involved in this type of conduct. And again, I mentioned a moment ago that many of these boys came from broken homes. A lot of them did not have a father figure, and the mothers saw these scoutmasters as being surrogate fathers for their sons. So when they would offer to take the boys camping or what have you, the parents were all too willing to allow their sons to go with these men, unaware that their sons were being trafficked and being photographed and videotaped. And these photographs and videos would then be bicycled around the country to other sick individuals who enjoyed this type of thing. With the parents and the authorities of these children none the wiser to what was actually going on. I'm going to read from an article on fox8live.com published April 24th, 2019. This article is by Amanda Roberts. And it's called, Victim Calls for Transparency After More Scout Troop Leaders Are Suspected of Child Sex Abuse. 
And the victim in this article is a man by the name of Richard Windman. And I'm only giving his name as he has come forward publicly stating that he was a victim of this sex abuse ring. Quote, in the 1970s, New Orleans police found the infamous Boy Scout Troop 137 was running a child pedophile ring, and Windman said he was one of those victims. He said he was recruited when Troop 137 started canvassing neighborhoods. Windman remembers how strange it was that he skipped Cub Scouts and went straight to a Boy Scout. I took it. I was special. I was advanced. I had a Boy Scout's uniform, and I was so young and not supposed to do that. The shirt pockets rested right above my belt. I looked ridiculous, Wyndham said. Soon after, he said the nightmare trip began. That's where I was first molested at Tom Woodall's house by Harry Kramer, and it went on for years. They would literally fly in from out of town. It was a huge pedophile network. The Boy Scouts was just a front of for network pedophiles, Windman said. And I'd just like to put it out there that... If Mr. Richard Windman happens to hear this episode and is interested in coming on the show to discuss the case as well as what happened to him, I would be more than happy to provide him an avenue to get the story out there to more people and hopefully help his case. But you can see from that statement that he gave this local news affiliate this group was actively searching for these boys, and it was fairly quick that they began the abuse. Now, you might notice that I'm jumping around here a little bit on this case, and the reason for that is it's difficult to get a concise timeline for what happened when, who had what role within this organization, and when known victims came forward. What we do know, however, is that in September of 1976, one of the perpetrators of the child sexual abuse went to a local photo mart to have a role of film develop. And when this film was developed, it was discovered that there were 18 pictures of a 15-year-old boy being sexually assaulted by his scoutmaster and another individual. Now, the person who developed these photographs immediately contacted the NOLA police department and told them what they had discovered on this roll of film. This next part comes again from Fox8Live.com and is an interview with one of the detectives who worked the case, Mason Spong. Quote, These guys moved in and were able to gain control of the scout troops, Spong said. They took these kids across the lake to K-Bar B Ranch and they had sexual acts over in St. Tammany. And this went on for a while, a couple of years before we even came on to these pictures that were turned over to us. They were very young and very angelic children, very friendly, outgoing most of the time. The common denominator was a single-parent home, basically poor. Further on, Spong states, these adults had money to some degree. You know, they were middle class, 
and those pedophiles would come in from out of town and have that sexual contact here in New Orleans in the homes of these other pedophiles. That's how it happened. Investigators started looking into the individual who had dropped off these photographs. They learned pretty quickly that this individual had access almost unlimited to children, so investigators began to speak with these children when they could get them away from their scout leaders. And according to Spung, they, detectives assigned to this case, began watching over these kids. And this continued as the ringleaders, along with 17 other individuals, were arrested in and around New Orleans. And this made kind of regional news at the time. And I think it's important to note that as soon as these men were arrested and their links to Boy Scouts were released to the public, individuals who worked for the Boy Scouts in the area immediately sent reports to the Boy Scouts headquarters in Texas stating that these individuals had been arrested. Now, I'm not saying that the Boy Scouts covered up the actions of these men, but it has been empirically proven that the Boy Scouts kept files on every individual associated with them who was either arrested or suspected of having quote-unquote unnatural relations with children. During this period of time, the mid-1970s, you have to remember that pedophiles were seen as gay men who were simply targeting boys. It wasn't seen as being a incurable mental disease. Rather, they were just seen as gay men acting out as gay men do. Fortunately, however, we know now that this is not the case. We know now, though, that you don't have to be gay in order to be a pedophile, nor are all pedophiles gay. They're not mutually exclusive. And I would hazard to guess that the majority of male pedophiles who are arrested and convicted of sexual abuse against boys do not consider themselves to be gay. They look at themselves as being something else, a man-boy lover. Yes, I know that is a disgusting phrase and terminology. It's fitting, though, because the SOBs that perpetrate this kind of action against children, specifically in this case young boys, are themselves disgusting animals. So we get these types who have a predilection for boys, and a good number of them are actually married with children. Their sexual urges, however, lie in the realm of young boys. You'll also get this, too, where you'll have an individual whose sexual desires are aimed at young girls, but they'll hide this by being a married individual. Again, many times you'll find these sickos having children of their own, and unfortunately, 
a lot of times these kids that they have end up becoming victims of their parents. So we got the Boy Scouts. They're keeping tabs on this thing because they want to keep the name of scouting clear of it and try and keep it nice and fresh and clean and wholesome. This is coming from an article in NOLA.com, specifically concerning a database that was released by the Los Angeles Times in 2012. This database was apparently known among those in the Boy Scouts as the quote-unquote perversion files. From the article. That newspaper's investigation found that across the country, the scouts sometimes failed to report abuse to authorities and many times apparently covered up allegations to protect the organization's reputation. The scouts issued an apology Thursday for past actions. In New Orleans, the documents available in the database do not indicate that the local scouts actively attempted to hide abuse. Rather, they suggested that the organization reacted to criminal charges already filed against scoutmasters and volunteers and looked to minimize media coverage of the events. Further along, the article states, In November 1976, two months after the case first made headlines, a local scouting official wrote to the national office, according to the documents in the Los Angeles Times database, Proof of immoral acts against Woodall and Kramer was shown to me by New Orleans Police Department with pictures. I have not seen any pictures of Halverson, however. He seemed to be one of the ringleaders, the local executive wrote. The national office responded the following month requesting letters from those involved, newspaper clippings, and court records. This information is important for future reference purposes and would certainly strengthen our position of refusing to accept any further applications for registration we might receive from these men, an official wrote. Unless we receive the above requested material, it will be difficult to place these men on the confidential file. So we have the scouts doing this as the men are being held in jail without bond or bail. It seems to go much deeper than that, however, as one article from the New Orleans Daily Record really goes out of its way to try and distance the Boy Scouts from the actions of Troop 137, and I'm going to read that here. From the Daily Record, June 1st, 1977. Scout sex scandal, a misnomer. For the past year, one of the country's great institutions has been undergoing the persecutions of the dam because of what must be termed as the greatest misnomer of the last decade. The Boy Scout sex scandal, as it has been so erroneously termed, has caused parents of New Orleans youngsters to become extremely wary of a fine youth program, and the shame of it all is that the scouting program was not involved in any way. The label, Scout Sex Scandal, has made most New Orleans believe that Troop 137, the scout unit involved, was led entirely by homosexuals who used many troop members for illicit activities. This simply is not true. In actuality, the leadership of Troop 137 was made up of a scout master and a committee of men who, for the most part, had sons in the troop. 
A thorough search of troop records indicate that three registered adult troop leaders and only two members of the troop were involved. What is seldom thought of is the fact that both of the boys were engaging in homosexual activity with the leader prior to the time they entered the troop. The boys, at the time of their entrance into the troop, were living, at their parents' request, with these same homosexual leaders. No evidence has produced which shows that any illicit activities took place on any scouting function. This seems to indicate that Halverson, Woodall, and Kramer were smart enough to know that scout officials would become aware of that immediately. Many people have exclaimed why weren't these people checked out more thoroughly. The fact is that they were. When Raymond T. Woodall was under consideration for the job of Scoutmaster, a representative of the council advised against him because not enough could be found out about him. It wasn't enough that nothing could be found against him. However, the pastor and institutional representative hired him anyway. Richard Halverston replaced Woodall as Scoutmaster some time later and underwent an exhaustive investigation. This search turned up that he was a volunteer juvenile probation officer for Orleans Parish. Scouting has laid down some basic principles for sponsoring institutions to use in choosing troop leaders, these being that adult leaders be well known to the institution that they be the type of men that the average person would like to lead their sons. The incident in New Orleans East was, to say the least, a tragedy. However, the treatment it has received from the news media is perhaps an even greater tragedy. Already, thousands of youngsters have missed out on the opportunities offered by scouting, mainly because news coverage of the mess in New Orleans East has made their parents fearful of trusting the Boy Scout. It is a sad commentary on our times when a fine institution like scouting can be tainted by so ludicrous a misrepresentation. So there we have just one example of the Boy Scouts attempting to cover their ass after these individuals are arrested, and we will discuss this further when we come back from the break. Cobra Killer Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway is the first and most detailed account of the gay porn murder that shocked a nation. Cobra Killer, featured on NBC's Snapped Killer Couples, pulls back the glitzy veil of the gay porn industry to expose a story of deceit, greed, and the ultimate betrayal. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice tells the story of online gay porn entrepreneur Brian Kosis, whose brutal near-decapitation on a Wednesday in early 2007 sent shockwaves through the small Pennsylvania town where he ran his porn empire. The basis for the Christian Slater film King Cobra, Cobra Killer has been called an addictive page-turner that you won't want to put down by the San Diego LGBT Weekly and a grisly, gripping documentary account of the 2007 murder by Passport Magazine, Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway, available on Amazon in paperback and ebook, or at bookstores nationwide. We are back. I've got a fresh cup of coffee and a new pack of smokes. Right before the break, I read the article 
which basically did everything in its power to both paint the perpetrators as homosexuals, distance the Boy Scouts from the activity of this ring's leaders, but also try and cast some shade on two of the victims. Yes, the author of that article who was anonymous on the copy that I read did try to throw two of the victims under the bus and paint them as willing participants in the activities that they were engaged in. Going so far as to say that these two boys were, quote, engaged in homosexual activities, unquote, with two of the perpetrators prior to their joining the Boy Scouts, and that in fact their parents had sent these boys to live with these two perpetrators. Very similar wording to things that the Catholic Church said back years ago when trying to get itself out of the noose that was tightening around its collective throat oftentimes painting the accuser in a tone or manner that would lead the reader to believe that the victim instigated what took place. And I have no doubt in my mind that the Boy Scouts commissioned this particular article to be written, so fuck you, Boy Scouts, that's a shady scumbag thing for an organization to do when presented with evidence that members of its organization are perpetrating the most heinous of crimes against children. No wonder your shitty organization has gone bankrupt. Back to the case, the perpetrators are being prepared for trial Unfortunately, one of their victims would end up being preyed upon again, and that is Richard Windman. As I stated earlier, many of the detectives involved in the investigation took these young boys kind of under their wing and went out of their way to watch out for them. Unfortunately, the detective who was looking out for Richard Windman ended up being reassigned to a different case. So Richard, or as he was known at the time, Ricky ended up getting assigned a different detective. A man by the name of Stanley Burkhardt, who was the lead detective for the child abuse unit at the time that this case was going on. Burkhart ended up sexually abusing Ricky on numerous occasions. And you're probably thinking this sounds like a conspiracy theory. Unfortunately, it is not. Burkhart ended up being kicked off of the force and tried and convicted in roundabouts 1987 after sending child abuse images through the mail and it was later found that he had molested one relative and numerous other individuals and Winman is actually on the court record stating that he was abused by Burkhart 
This was from a federal trial in 2011, I believe, where he testified that Burkhart had molested him in the 1970s when he was supposed to be protecting Ricky. The court found the testimony so believable, it stated, The court finds clear and convincing evidence that the testimony of Mr. Winman is credible, and the denial of Mr. Burkhardt of this incident is not credible. And I do want to point out that being abused in the Boy Scouts as well as by this officer is not the only abuse that poor Richard suffered. He would later go on to be abused while attending a Jesuit high school by a janitor. And according to Richard, when the abuse occurred, uh, one of the priests actually stood there and watched it happen doing nothing. Some people have come forward and stated that this is completely unlikely. Unfortunately, for an individual who is the victim of systematic child abuse, it is all too often the case that they will be re-victimized over and over again. And I'm going to give you some reasons why this happens. The men who molested Ricky and numerous other members of Troop 137 knew one another and in fact there is photographic evidence of them all together at various events at this Jesuit high school. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to understand that these men share the things that they do to young boys with one another and in doing so, they also tell the names of these children to their, quote, friends. So that when Ricky ends up going to high school, the individual who molested him was already well-versed in who he was and what he had been subjected to, and was therefore easily able to target Ricky and abuse him further, as he knew that he was unfortunately used to this kind of treatment and had been broken by it. The fact that Ricky did not end, take his own life or destroy himself because of the horrific level of abuse that he suffered is a testament to the inner strength that he has. But further testament to the strength he has is what Ricky ended up doing for the police during the investigation of Troop 137. Ricky put police in contact with other boys who had been molested by their scout leaders and helped the police to gain the trust of these young boys who in turn gave the police further corroborating evidence concerning the abuse that they had suffered. Ricky also went on to testify at the trials of the ringleaders helping to secure convictions for all of those involved, including a man from Boston who was a millionaire. Now you might be scratching your head thinking, how did the police find out who all was involved in this organization 
just as they had in North Fox Island, the leaders of this ring kept meticulous records of those who participated in the assault of the boys and upon raiding the perpetrators houses they were able to find evidence linking all of these men to the crime they also found evidence linking this group in with north fox island and i've seen a couple different reports stating that the names of some of the boys from troop 137 were actually found on the index card that Dean Coral, the Houston mass murderer, kept, and that these boys' names were also found on the index cards discovered in Dallas and in California. Whether this is true or not, I can't state because I've only seen it on a few websites. And unfortunately, the websites did not provide documentation to verify this fact, but I do find it interesting as it's verifiable that Francis D. Sheldon and his group operating out of North Fox Island and Dean Coral were in cahoots with each other at least at one point. And it would make sense for Sheldon, who had a massive nationwide pedophile ring which was trafficking boys all across the country to have had contact with Troop 137 as much like Troop 137, Sheldon took out ads in the back of gay men's magazines to solicit customers for the abuse of these boys. The Troop 137 did the same thing. And it's my belief that while they may not have been working hand-in-hand -hand with one another or been part of the same network, they were least familiar with one another and helped facilitate each other with the commission of their crimes as well as with getting perpetrators to come and partake in the illicit activities that they were selling. In fact, it's almost a certainty that they were doing these things. Both of them had ties to the Jesuits as well as to homes for troubled teens. According to an article on NOLA.com, quote, 17 adults were arrested, including the four New Orleans scout leaders, a Tennessee minister who ran a home for wayward boys, an official from a Florida school for children with learning disabilities, a prominent New Orleans landscape painter, and a Boston millionaire. This millionaire was a man by the name of Richard C. Jacobs. Jacobs ended up going missing the day before he was scheduled to stand trial for his role in the sexual abuse of these boys. And to the best of my knowledge, no trace of him has ever been found. It's interesting to note that at the time he disappeared 
1977, the judge overseeing his case indefinitely suspended the trial as he believed there was enough evidence to show that Jacobs had not disappeared voluntarily. Also of interest to note is that in 1988, Jacob's family attempted to have him declared legally dead, and the court rejected this, stating that it was most probable that he was still alive and was simply living life on the lamb. Of those who were involved in this, Ray Thomas Woodall ended up getting a 75-year prison sentence, while Halverson ended up getting 30 years Kramer, 45 years, and Ciel, 7 years. This effectively destroyed Boy Scouts in not only New Orleans, but also in Louisiana as a whole, and the Boy Scouts went to great lengths to try and shame people into joining the Boy Scouts after this although the reverberations from this case lasted for decades. It also changed the lives of many of those who were involved in it. Obviously, the young boys who were the victims of these parasitic pieces of garbage had their lives irreparably changed. The officers who were involved in this case also had their lives changed. The Survivors of Childhood Sex Abuse, which is a nationwide organization dedicated to supporting survivors of childhood sexual abuse. The organization was founded January 6, 2021. They elected Mason Spung, you'll remember him from earlier in the case, as the chairman of the board spung after working as a police officer in NOLA ended up working for the district attorney's office. And I know from having read various documents that other officers who were involved in this case ended up getting involved in similar organizations. Before we wrap it up this week, I just want to plug the Survivors of Childhood Sex Abuse. You can find them at scasaorg.org. If you have been the victim of childhood sexual abuse and are unsure of how to handle it, or if there's anything you can do to bring the perpetrators to justice, go and check out their website. They offer a slew of resources. Their mission statement is, The mission of survivors of childhood sex abuse is to empower victims to become survivors and thrive. Through understanding, empathy, education, and advocacy, we support you and your loved ones in your healing journey. We will listen to you, believe you, and we will support you. Again, that's scsaorg.org. I hope you have enjoyed my coverage of the Louisiana Boy Scout Troop 137. 
you have any information on this case you'd like to share with me, or if you were involved in this case and would like to come on the show to discuss it further, you can contact me via email, ian at corpsecreekpublishing.com. Till next week, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid! Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance. While kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.